Welcome to the podcast of ideas. This is a recording of the Academy of Ideas Economy Forum, which met for the first time on Zoom on Wednesday, the 1st of April 2020. The title for this discussion is How Will Coronavirus Affect Johnsonomics? The speaker is Phil Mullen, author of Creative Destruction, How to Start an Economic Renaissance, and the chair is Rob Lyons, the Academy of Ideas is Science and Technology Editor. Academy of Ideas Economy Forum. My name's Rob Lyons and I'm the convener of the forum. This event was originally different in two ways. First of all, we were going to do it in real life rather than online. And secondly, it was envisaged as a simple response to Sajid Javid's first budget as Chancellor of the Exchequer. A chance to look at how the Conservative government's economic policy would work out in practice. Obviously, events have overtaken us. Sajid Javid is no longer the Chancellor. Also, we have the COVID-19 pandemic, which has pretty much thrown any short-term economic policy off course. However, while we want to talk about the effects of COVID-19, we also want to situate how the government is reacting in the context of, for want of a better term, what we might call Johnsonomics. So our speaker is Phil Mullen. He's a regular at our forums. Phil is an economist and business manager and author most recently of Creative Destruction, How to Start an Economic Renaissance. Phil will introduce the discussion for about 20 minutes and then we'll have plenty of time for your thoughts and questions. So over to you, Phil. Rob, really, thanks very much for uh, setting all this up for us. I know it's one of the earliest, early uh, experiments that we're doing with this. I know there'll be many others um, being organized, already advertised. So uh, let's hope this one goes well. Okay, I think one of the catchphrases of the pandemic so far is that crises change everything. Um, For instance, Sarah Lunnan, a spokesperson for Extinction Rebellion, remarked last week, everything now has changed. The Conservatives have just nationalised the economy. So what we do now, she said, is very interesting. Now, that last phrase sounds a bit ominous to me, but I'll return to that at the end. Um, Now, of course, lots will change with the pandemic, not least uh, thousands of businesses have already gone under uh, and may not return. Uh, And this could rise to hundreds of thousands uh, unless the government acts immediately to deliver on its business support pledges. And if the government fails here in the same way that it's been failing on virus testing, uh, personal protective equipment and so on, then it is literally the case that millions of individuals and families Uh, will endure great hardship with little prospect of getting their old jobs back. But, however, despite the uh, changes which will be brought about by this huge economic disruption, I think much from the past will continue too. So when it comes to Johnsonomics, as as Rob said, what we're using as a term to describe the economic policies of the Johnson government, I also think that there will be much continuity um, into the future. Crises rarely erase the past completely, and the way this pandemic is panning out, so far at least, uh, this will be no different. Now, in six months' time, and after you know the unpredictable impact of an even more extended lockdown, we might need a, a different emphasis on what's changed uh, fundamentally. But for today, with regard to the economic policies, the crisis looks like extending existing practices and crystallizing uh, previous tendencies. Now, the element of continuity, I think, also runs through the different narratives already characterizing Johnsonomics, of which we have, because of the pandemic, uh, three, what I call BC, DC, and AC. So uh, before, during, and after uh, coronavirus is contained. 
So the BC narrative, the before coronavirus narrative, was about delivering on Johnson's leveling up mantra, mainly it seemed through focusing economic policy on the regions outside the Southeast, especially infrastructure spending on transport and communications and spreading out research and development operations. Now the DC narrative today is that this has all been overtaken. Policy has shifted to a qualitatively different mode, uh, simply doing whatever it takes, uh, the old cliche, to ensure as much of business and employment survives the lockdown recession. And although there is great uh, concern, which I certainly share, about the speed and the comprehensiveness of implementing Chancellor uh, Rishi Shunak's uh, packages of support, I think there is still broad agreement that the intention of these economic policies entire, is entirely justified, and I share it, to preserve as much as possible of business structures and especially of people's incomes, so that after the crisis passes, the economy is better placed uh, uh, to get back. And this brings us to the third phase, uh, what is likely to materialize in policy AC after coronavirus. So to what extent will the responses to the, to the pandemic accelerate? Uh, to what extent will they possibly interrupt uh, or overtake pre-existing features of economic policy? Now, because nobody can say uh, how deep and how long the current recession will be, since we don't know how extensive uh, the shutting down of the country will be, we also don't therefore know the scale of the destruction of business operations uh, that government policy might have to respond to. Nor can we know um, about political consequences which might flow from the circumstances of social discontent and the much higher joblessness uh, and financial hardship as a result uh, of a prolonged shutdown. But in the absence of a sort of coronavirus-catalyzed Brexit referendum-scale political shock, although that's obviously possible, but in the absence of that, and although specific policy responses are unknowable, uh, I think there are some uh, uh, clear policy themes, and I'm going to uh, uh, look at three of these. Now, to help contextualize these, I think we should take a critical stance to some of the already established, but I would argue spurious, characterizations of Johnsonomics that were present before the pandemic, uh, but have been reinforced uh, during it. First, there's the idea that Boris Johnson is a distinctly uh, and distinctively pragmatic, non-ideological, one-nation prime minister. Boris himself peddles this idea, not least at the weekend when he took that dig at his supposedly ideological predecessor, Margaret Thatcher, when he said, uh, uh, there really is such a thing as society uh, in response uh, uh, to the pandemic, referring to that uh, frequently quoted but often misinterpreted comment uh, by Thatcher in 1987 uh, in a woman's own interview when she said that uh, comment, there is no such thing as society. Now, the notion of Johnson's pragmatism being unusual is, I think, completely untrue. His record of reactive muddling through, which has been on certainly on full display during the pandemic, has been pretty much the norm amongst Britain's prime ministers ever since the late 1970s, following the bipartisan abandonment of uh, mixed economy Keynesianism. I think ever since then, you can say that economic policy has been defined mostly by reacting to things when they happen, guided mostly by the shared perspective of seeking to preserve what exists, what I would call traditional small C conservatism. Uh, and that tradition includes not just Tory leaders since the 1980s, but Labour ones too. Thus, this idea of conservative pragmatism 
uh, as being a distinguishing feature of Johnsonomics uh, is not true. This approach, I think, uh, uh, continues to foster, as we're seeing today, a very short-termist reactive form of policymaking that is very often unequal uh, to the challenges of modern life, as the uh, inadequacies in responding to the, uh, to the pandemic seem to be demonstrating so far. Second, an even more delusional narrative is that under Johnson, the Tories have succumbed to the leftist idea that the state is better than the market. Ever since December's election, we've had these Panglossian Labour Party supporters claiming that the Labour Party may have narrowly lost the election uh, for some uh, unusual temporary factors, um, but that it had won the intellectual argument uh, over the merits of state intervention. And as Jeremy Corbyn you know, said last week, uh, I didn't think he said it would only take three months for me to be proved absolutely right. Now, we could just say, dream on, Jeremy, and let him get into his uh, 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 coronavirus-free uh, retirement. And we could say that to John McDonnell and Keir Starmer and all the others in the leadership that looks like replacing him. But I think we should also recognize that this mythical narrative has resonance uh, among some young people, and that may survive uh, this pandemic too. And I think the answer to this laborist bluster brings us to a third and much more common uh, perspective about Johnsonomics. Uh, that it is defined by a, revive, a revival of the big state, uh, which Sunak's rhetorical responses uh, to, the, uh, to, them, to the pandemic, although so far, as we see, as we know, are mostly unfulfilled, but he seems to have illustrated that in, in, in his statements. But the idea that BC or DC Johnsonomics is characterized by the return of economic statism is also, I think, hugely misleading. Because not only is the Johnson government not enacting any alternative agenda of the Labour Party, more pertinently, it is entirely consistent with the tradition of conservative parties of the past, just like it is with Christian democratic parties in, uh, in Europe and with uh, Republican parties in the, in the United States. They have generally been economic interventionist parties throughout their lives, something that has been more by necessity uh, rather than ideological choice. Just going back briefly to the late 19th century, ever since then, mainstream governments across advanced countries have relied on the state to help support their economies through good times and bad. Regulationism, state spending have been on a steady secular rise ever since. And in even more modern times, since the end of the post-war boom at the end of the 60s, increasing state economic intervention and interventionism has been the norm under governments of all stripes. Now, initially in the 1970s, this was about attempting to counter the effects of the generalized economic crisis. But when this failed, uh, with the onset of stagflation, don't worry, I'm not going to get into a long uh, exegesis on, on uh, economic history. But when this failed, um, governments mostly shifted to seek to conserve the economy as much as possible. And this, as we well know, went alongside failing uh, and falling business investment lower rates of productivity growth, and the way that rising government spending ever since has often had to be financed, not from inadequate tax revenues, but by expanding debt. Uh, all features, uh, all trends which have been building up bigger problems for the future, which is uh, the future of today. I think Johnsonomics is a break from previous state interventions policies, not so much in the scale of its reach into and across the economy, but that it is doing so in a more overt and unabashed way, which has not been the norm for the last 30 years. 
But even then, it's not entirely new what we're getting today from Johnson, uh, from Johnson's policies, and will likely to get after the uh, pandemic is over. Because ever since the uh, the financial crash in 2008, the calls from within the mainstream for more openly activist government policies has been on the rise. There's been a recognition since then about the weakness, uh, particularly since about 2010, but the weakness or really the absence of any economic recovery. And that has prompted the need for stronger government economic policies uh, 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 and a discussion which has uh, become much more, uh, much more prominent. And then with the shock of the 2016 popular votes in American Britain, that added uh, to the shift towards what I would say is the more sort of like shameless pursuit of state economic measures. So that today, the rhetoric of small or minimal statism has had uh, an increasingly small and minimal following. Now, instead, the post-2008 experiences has led to a rising clamor for government to adopt a more coordinated mode of state intervention for vigorous fiscal policies to complement those uh, ultra-loose monetary policies that, although irreversible, as we've seen in the last couple of years, are incapable and are recognized as being incapable of reviving growth. For years now, many former and even incumbent central bankers have been demanding that governments like the British government recognize that monetary policy cannot be expected to be, the term goes, the only game in time. And I've been arguing that fiscal activism uh, is required even if we simply want to stabilize the economy. Similarly, over the last decade since the financial crisis, the notion of state industrial policies have made a comeback with many, uh, uh, in many uh, advanced countries. Public infrastructure investment in particular has assumed an increasingly uh, an increased significance uh, as a means for trying to inspire some economic growth to benefit the so-called left behinds. Now, although governments, not least in Britain, have been slow to translate fine-sounding industrial strategy documents into meaning meaningful practices, this rehabilitation of industrial policies long preceded Johnson taking over as prime minister. The openly interventionist course flagged up by the Johnson administration is thus, I would argue, neither a break from British practice, uh, nor is it uniquely British. State activism, with governments brazenly playing a bigger economic role again, is therefore, I will argue, the first legacy that we can anticipate from the pandemic, not just to inform Johnsonomics, but the approach to economic policy uh, across the advanced countries. In effect, treasuries, and finance ministers are asking us, asking us to forget everything they told us about public debt being an anathema, an abomination. They're now saying we have to spend to sustain the economy in this pandemic. So we'll print money, we'll borrow funds, uh, and then we'll sort out managing the debt and other implications later. And I think the relevant point here is that now this Rubicon has been passed, it'll be very difficult for them to turn it back again in the, uh, in the medium term. Having said that, we should be clear that this departure by government to doing openly what it had previously been doing more guardedly and surreptitiously does not mean it will be sufficient on its own to revive the economy. We should recall that Japan entered its secular stagnation earlier than all the other industrialized countries after its financial crash back at the start of the 1990s. And it's been running a continuous fiscal stimulus ever since then. Average annual public deficits of about 5% a year have left it with uh, uh, a national debt of about 240% of GDP against the sort of 80 to the 100% of most other advanced countries. 
but tellingly, of course, it is still stuck in its depression. Now, a big reason for this is that by propping up its economy, a lot of this, a lot of this extra state spending has been increasing the extent of corporate dependency on the state. This applies not just to not just to, to, to Japan, where that concept of zombie businesses originated, but across uh, the rest of the industrialized world. This wider system of corporate welfare, I think, points to the way established businesses rely on state operations for a lot of their income, especially on public orders, uh, on state contracts and so on, and on state subsidies of multiple types. In effect, many businesses are removed from the realm of market competition now. Now, with the pandemic justifying governments, and not just Johnson's, undisguised economic activism, equally, we're slicing businesses blatantly seeking state support, something which they would have been much more reticent to do, you know, 15, 20 years ago, uh, and even in the earlier part of this decade. Now, with businesses falling over themselves to seek government help to survive, I think we can say there are very few pretensions uh, to uh, talking up the virtues of the free market and free competition. And I think one potential consequence of increased economic interventionism through the pandemic is that as corporate dependency widens, then industrial concentration, that's the growth of bigger and bigger firms dominating sectors, uh, uh, will extend, just as we saw in the banking sector after the financial crisis. And even when that's not deliberate, government efforts to sustain the economy, now of course the explicit message during the, during the, the pandemic, these inevitably tend to favor already established incumbent businesses. They're regarded collectively as too important to fail, but also because the inevitable rules-based conditions that accompany uh, uh, state bailouts, business subsidies, are much harder and, and often impossible to meet for startups uh, and loss-making scaling up businesses. It's just not easy for a young, ambitious, initially unprofitable firm to show its commercial viability uh, to the intermediary banks that provide uh, the government's emergency loans uh, and grants, and you'll probably heard many interviews with uh, business people of that type of that type over the last few days. Buying economic survival, both DC and AC, through closer public-private linkages, I think will reinforce this corporate welfare and help sustain parastatal companies, thereby prolonging the long depression. Thus, today's disaster prevention measures from Johnsonomics could well. Uh, consolidate a less furtive but still stultifying economic interventionism and importantly with, with little public debate and discussion about that. A second and potentially more dangerous feature that could follow on is the greater acceptance not just of state intervention but of the flagrant national protectionism that this usually entails. We've already seen that in the last few weeks in the unashamed uh, pursuit of national protectionist policies, not just in Germany and France putting on export bans on, on, on medical equipment and so on, but also in Britain and the USA. The pandemic has already heightened anxieties in some quarters uh, about national self-sufficiency over medical protective equipment, over foodstuffs, even over vaccine developments. And that's been contributing to border controls on goods as well as on people. Now, this prompts, I think, the danger of galvanizing nationalist policies that could aggravate the pre-existing uh, international tensions. A third pandemic reinforced theme in economic policy, and this is one I'll end with, is how the coronavirus world, or the post-coronavirus world, 
could reinforce the regulation of so-called sustainable, responsible, stakeholding, uh, caring capitalism. Again, this is not out of the blue. It follows a decade and more of increasingly virulent uh, business bashing, not just from corporate governance uh, campaigners, but also from within governments and from within business itself. In response to the economy shutdown, there's already plenty of discussion going on about holding businesses to account, working out who are the business heroes, who are the business villains. Uh, uh, you know, did they recently pay dividends to their shareholders? Uh, as has been, you know, uh, thrown at EasyJet and, and several other companies, as if paying, divis paying dividends is some heinous crime. You know, how much of a pay cut uh, are the chief executives volunteering to take? You know, how do they treat their workers and their freelance contractors? These are all the discussions I think which will which will escalate. Now, I think clearly so, some corporate deeds during this crisis, in particular, badly treating. Uh, your workers or hiking bright prices to consumers are genuinely serious matters and they should be pursued by all of us. You know, profiteering from a crisis of which we've seen examples in the last week uh, is, uh, uh, is completely reprehensible. But there's also a danger here of buck passing by politicians who I think would be better occupied holding their elected government to account for what they did or failed to do, BC and DC. Because if on the basis of disreputable practices by a few business leaders, Johnson, Johnsonomic policies regulate deeper into businesses, non-business, but so-called social responsibilities, then I think that's something which would be bad for business, bad for government, accountability, and bad for democracy. And I think these dangers this, this, of this third theme are especially acute if the restrictive economic policies justified by government as necessary to deal with this health catastrophe are then extended without full and proper political engagement and accountability into other areas that are very likely to damage economic growth. As alluded to at the start, I think proponents of tougher environmental policies have already been using the pandemic to assert the battle over COVID-19 needs to be extended to fight carbon emissions too. Already much effort is going into linking coronavirus to climate change, claiming that humans are messing with nature, uh, being the sort of the uh, unspecific but common cause uh, uh, for both of them. For instance, Inger Anderson, the UN's environmental chief, uh, claims that nature is sending us a message, both with coronavirus and with the ongoing uh, climate-related disturbances of you know bad weather and storms and so on. Anderson argues that humanity is placing too many pressures on the natural world with damaging consequences and has warned that failing to take care of the planet meant, not just, uh, meant also not taking care of ourselves. So she said, our, our, our health entirely depends on the climate and the other organisms we share the planet with. Others similarly talk of the pandemic as a unique opportunity to manage a triple crisis, a health, economic, and environmental crisis. Uh, the Planetary Emergency Partnership, which is aligned to the Club of Rome, protests too that COVID-19 reveals that we are, quote, one humanity living on one planet, and that this planet is in the midst of a deeper and longer term crisis of climate change and biodiversity loss. Accordingly, and I think this is a point for us to think about, the partnership is calling for post-pandemic economic recovery plans to prioritize the health of, of the planet as being synonymous uh, with the health of the people. 
Now, I think such propositions draw out one of the dangers of the overblown analogy between coronavirus and fighting a world war. Uh, engaging in life and death contests with other countries can require, uh, as uh, we know from history, can require abrupt and sometimes illiberal actions without being able to seek mandates from the electorate. Most people accept that such wartime decisions might have to be taken quickly and justifying the temporary waiving of democratic approval. The problem is that the analogy of warlike conditions is being extended not just to a short-term necessity, like overcoming COVID-19, but to longer-term issues too. For instance, you may or you may not agree that there is a climate emergency. I, I do not. But what is an emergency for our democracy is if the pandemic is used to normalize emergency policies that entrench restrictions on economic growth without extensive public debate and authorization. So to conclude, I think we are in the midst of a man-made, not a natural economic collapse that arises from responding to a pandemic above all considerations, and that's justified. The danger is that a post-pandemic economic policies take this as a precedent for putting other objectives, such as propping up a zombie economy, national self-sufficiency, regulating business behaviors, and perhaps most prominently, reducing carbon emissions above all other considerations and without real public examination. If this happens, it could extend and deepen what is a chronic economic condition that would have even more serious long-term implications for growth and prosperity than today's self-generated but acute recession. This is not a direction that we should slip into under the pretext that it's an emergency, just like coronavirus, something must be done. And for a start there, but I think we require and should be all calling for genuine public discussion over the pros and cons of AC Johnsonomics, the economic policies, which we will see in the months and years to come. Thank you very much, Phil. So, as I said at the start, if you want to, um, to take part in the discussion, you don't just have to uh, ask questions. You can make points or uh, add to what Phil said or disagree with what Phil said. I'll take about maybe six points at a time and then perhaps ask Phil to come back on, on those points and questions. So, uh, I have um, James Petz. Very interesting points raised. Um, one of the particular dangers, I think, of the enormous increase in state spending is that the state will have a corrupt incentive to acquire resources by illegitimate means, by facilitating rent-seeking. So, for example, introducing ever more extreme forms of intellectual property and other kinds of repression from which the state profits. And one, there's a real danger that one is seeing in the 21st century, a, a full-on convergence of all kinds of governments around the world on the state capitalism model that one sees in places like China, from authoritarian regimes realizing that traditional totalitarianism is so destructive to the economy that they actually lose real power from themselves by implementing it, but also the more liberal regimes realizing that their own political power can be augmented um, without resorting to the full-on totalitarianism of the past. And that's a real danger for everybody's freedom and prosperity. And what's really needed is for people who understand those dangers to be able to promote a coherent and coordinated counter-narrative to the increasing authoritarian extremism that one is seeing generally, but maybe accelerated by the current crisis and in particular response to it. And 
what we all need to think about precisely what that can be and how that can respond in particular to emergency, because clearly there needs to be a response to the kind of emergency that one has now. But I would suggest that a starting point for that would be a very particular method for dissipating state power to deal with emergencies without impairing the ability of the state to deal effectively with emergencies by having a completely separate body to deal with either a particular type or all types of emergencies that is granted temporary powers by a completely unrelated body, such as a court on the basis of rules, and those powers are taken away once that third party decides that those powers are no longer needed. The most fundamental thing about emergencies is not to let the people who exercise the power also decide how long that power should remain being able to be exercised. Those are the things that are particularly important to separate in the context of emergencies. It's well known that states throughout history have used emergencies as justification for um, extremist actions of all kinds. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Patrick Schumacher. Yeah, very interesting talk and also the second speaker. Um, I'm agreeing, broadly agreeing with this, uh, with the danger of uh, increased statism, authoritarian kind of solutions coming forward. And um, I was wondering about, um, I see also the, the danger of a real uh, economic crisis, depression, uh, going further down and continuing there. And I wanted to ask Phil about profiteering. And, and I heard that phrase. I don't know what is particularly meant by this, but I worry about the kind of anti-profiteering uh, rhetoric. And I, because I foresee nearly necessarily a rising in certain prices, there will be a divergence of price developments and a lot of commodities will increase their prices. We have a money supply inflation, but we have a disruption of supply chains and productions going down and the market would have to somehow allocate. In the end, we might end up with the attempt to put price controls in as well. And we back into kind of 70s rationing price control. Um, so, so that's the kind of more immediate worry, um, which would affect everybody's freedom and prosperity. Okay, uh, Cronin and Kelly. Thank you very much, Phil. That was uh, very enlightening. And just, I, I had, two sort of related points one was i didn't quite understand the differentiation you were making in terms of johnson's politics being that different from the pragmatism of say post-war christian democrats and republicans and if you like post um thatcher or post reagan um christian democrats i i mean they seem to take you know uh, one group seems to say the state as being and keynesianism as being some sort of necessity and the others seem to say sort of free market economics as being a sort of necessity, but I, there doesn't seem to be a difference in their fundamental approach. They both seem equally pragmatic. Um, the other thing was the politicization of the economy. Isn't that also a trap in that this only works? The, the, um, the championing of, nat of nature over basically our desire to have a better life to see increased living standards that only works so long as it has the assent of the rest of the population if the state entwines itself more and more in the economy um doesn't it return to that trap that it had in the 70s of uh what was described as the ungovernability crisis that as the state has become is it further and further entwined into the economy it actually becomes the scene of, or it becomes an object of people's opposition. And even it, that could become even more unmediated if there's no, you know, if there, there, there is 
no clear democratic mandate for what's being done. Okay, right. Uh, I've got to Mandra, and then I'll have Daniel, and then Peter, and then we'll uh, go back to Phil. So uh, to Mandra. I mean, maybe this is too broad a question for this point, but I was thinking about the whole creative destruction idea, which is obviously Phil is like the whole kind of point of your book is that we can't keep muddling on, and in a sense, we missed the opportunity of the recession to actually get rid of the zombie businesses and radically restructure. So how much potential do you think there is for radical restructuring and getting rid of the deadwood now, given that the government is being very interventionist and is going to have to continue to be very interventionist to get the economy restarted? How much scope do you think they actually have to say, well, we're not actually going to keep all these businesses going indefinitely and we are going to target some intervention, some support to try and start certain sectors up. And if you think there is that scope, where do you think they should be putting that effort in? Where where should they be starting things and where should they be letting things die? Okay, thanks very much. Um, Daniel Benamine. Okay, well, I just wanted to highlight what I thought was one opportunity and one risk. Uh, but I very much agreed with what Phil said as an overall framework. I thought it was really, really useful. Uh, in terms of the opportunity, I think there is an opportunity to really make the case for economic growth against the Greens, to make the case for positive uh, economic restructuring rather than just propping up zombie companies, to make the case for innovation. So things we've already been arguing for in the past, but I think in this new context, we should really be pushing those arguments very hard. So there is a positive side. There, is, there are opportunities for us in that respect. In terms of the risks, for me, one of the big risks is pragmatism. Or in other words, what I think is likely to happen is that the huge attachment to the state will strengthen technocratic ideas. And anyone who puts forward any kind of ambitious alternative perspective will be put down with the argument that we're in a very difficult situation. We need to be pragmatic. We need to do what's shovel ready. Uh, and that would be the kind of one of the most plausible arguments used against us. So I think we really need to prepare ourselves for that as well. Peter. The country's clearly going to get a lot of debt. What will the effect of that be? Will it simply be a case of, OK, get debt is next to 50 percent of GDP, we'll raise taxes by a couple of cent, we'll solve the problem, or is it worse than that? The other thing is long term. Lots of people shifting towards some um, defined contribution pensions. Government talks about banks not paying dividends. Politically, that might make good sense. What's it going to do with the pension funds? When this all ends, which at some stage it will do, what will happen? Will there be a boom as people travel more, go out more, do everything that uh, they've not been able to do? Or will there be a slump because people haven't got the money to do it because of um, problems with pension with other things? That's very useful. A bit more on what a lot of people have been talking about more generally in the media. So, um, Phil, do you want to come back on those questions and points? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it, we should distinguish two different things, which is uh, our best guesstimates as to what the impact of the pandemic will be on the economy, um, which perhaps pertains to the questions about, you know, how big will the debt be? Um, how, uh, uh, you know, how much destruction will there be of existing businesses? From uh, the, I think at the moment, I'd say the more important danger we have, which is how the uh, 
crisis-related measures or approaches to politics will be used afterwards. And uh, on the latter point first, I mean, I think the points that uh, uh, that James and Patrick made about the dangers of of uh, this leading to more authoritarianism that that uh, that that possibility is is there. Um, but I think at the moment there are some more practical things. Um, and I think, sorry, I think that possibility will obviously become much higher as the, as the, if the lockdown gets extended and extended. But if the lockdown is, uh, say, three, four, five, even, even up to six months, then I think uh, we can anticipate some of the um, implications of what the state is doing now and the repercussions of that in terms of what they would do afterwards. So, so take an example, you talked about the state sort of intertwining itself with the, uh, with the economy and taking over the economy. Um, I think the practical way that's sort of happening is not so much through, you know, uh, you know what we can expect something through, through uh, uh, House of Commons, through laws being, being uh, passed, but through things like um, the state taking equity stakes in the companies that it bails out. Now, uh, that happened, as we know, during the financial crisis in terms of taking uh, controls in you know, Lloyd's and TSB here and uh, uh, the government in America also taking stakes in, in, in other companies. And some it reversed and some it, and, and some it still hasn't reversed. Uh, I think that um, approach is there's a, there's a risk of that being extended an, an awful lot. Now, I don't care about uh, the government having, you know, 10% of EasyJet or whatever, or you know, 20% of of, uh, of Virgin Atlantic or, or whatever the, the whatever the proportions are. What I am concerned about is what's coming with that, which is what they are already flagging up, which is that it will come with conditions. Um, that the conditions will be some of the areas I, I I schematically went through. You know, tighter corporate governance. We will be restricting what dividends you can give out, which is uh, which is. Uh, you said Peter is going to have a knock-on effect for people's pensions. You know, if they are do actually stop everyone paying dividends, you know that's where a lot of the pensions are paid from. Um, but controls on dividends, controls on share buybacks, controls on uh, executive pay are all over uh, uh, the discussion at the moment. So, you know, there will be conditions attached to a more pervasive uh, extension of state equity ownership of uh, of companies and. On top of that, uh, there is, in particular areas, I mean, we're seeing the discussion over the airlines in particular, that there will be um, uh, 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 climate uh, emissions or, or carbon emission conditions put on as well. So it's that sort of way in which um, uh, uh, measures which are the result of the uh, 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 actions taken in response to the pandemic, i.e. the lockdown, which creates the recession, which creates the need for bailouts, which then uh, gives the state more uh, control to uh, impose an agenda, which I think would be a very regressive agenda on areas like corporate governance and areas like climate change, in ways which is done, as Daniel was saying, because we have to be pragmatic, we're in a tough situation, we've got too much debt, blah, 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 and therefore these things will have to happen. And they will come through in a sort of a, a, a sort of semi-spontaneous way without any accountability, without any public discussion. Just going to the earlier point in terms of how destructive this is. I mean, I, I, my view at the moment is that, and, and I probably have a different view in six months' time if this is still going on. But if we were to follow what seems to be happening in China, that there were that there is. I mean, it's not as brutal the lockdown here as it is in was it was in parts of China, but it does seem that you know two months of a brutal lockdown 
does seem to uh, get on top of these things, on top of the spread of the uh, of the virus. And if we assume that some of the things we're hearing about today, the, the, the new treatments that are being experimented with, I mean, the vaccine, they're still talking, will take another year or so, but various sort of measures of treating this are being, are being experimented. Then we, you know, probably won't with that. Now at the moment, I'm thinking we're not talking about six months, in which case the level of destructiveness uh, will be substantial, but not uh, uh, of a scale of the, uh, the, anal the analogy of the world war. You know, it's very different when you're talking about a six-year war where the whole country is focused on one objective compared to a three, four, five a month self-imposed lockdown. So, uh, I, so my take on this at the moment certainly is that I do not think that the government is going to be forced into the sort of uh, measures taken after the Second World War in terms of a mission-orientated reconstruction of the economy. I think the perspective will be the one I've outlined in my, in my introduction, which will be the conservator one, the one of trying to maintain and prop up what exists. So yes, a lot of things will go to the wall. Many of these businesses may not come back. Uh, uh, and that will add to um, this sort of uh, what would be a, a paras an increasingly parasitic state-dependent economy. Uh, but I think rather than, than them seeing this as an opportunity to shake things up, which is what I would argue for, it would be taken as an opportunity of an extending its uh, tentacles into society. And its core perspective of propping up what exists will be given extra pragmatic uh, rationale. That okay, thank you. Um, I've got... Um, so the next person to speak is uh, Paul R. Right, okay. Um, it's a great discussion. Good to see so many people at an economy forum. Um, my point is brief. Uh, there's been lots of talk about the kind of fragility of the global international supply chains around stuff like getting parts for ventilators and stuff like that. Um, it's kind of getting a bit of a bad rap, I guess. Um, now, I can see that the Greens are likely to uh, see this as a good thing and it would be an argument for doing things locally, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I, I mean, I'm guessing there is going to be some element of onshoring, whether it's Britain, America, wherever. And there are obviously bad things to it, such as sort of nationalism and stuff like that. But I do also wonder if um, there's any scope for a sort of positive thing out of that, some second layer level of kind of restructuring and innovation possibly come out of that if it's presented in the right way okay thanks very much um claire fox i'm trying to look for the positive as well but following on from what paul uh, just said and tamanda earlier talked about radical restructuring um i suppose there does seem to be some aspects of the discussion that look like they could change things for a long time even if it's uh, a discussion on who's paid for what, you know, the kind of sudden appreciation of unskilled uh, workers and the fact that nobody ever noticed them existing before and now everybody's saying, oh my God, they live on a pittance and they're more important than we realised. But even in terms of the way that some zombie economy um, companies might be repurposed um, and the quick speed with which some companies like um, are, are making respirators those were that word those things that make you breathe um and th those kind of sudden uh, discovery that that maybe uh, some companies are able to adapt quite quickly a bit like a war economy is that not a good thing and presumably even when some companies are going to the wall even though this is harsh that that if zombie companies are um being creatively destructive that's not necessarily a bad thing but also that fact that 
some of the more regressive precautionary principle regulations that have held back medical research and so on are now being dispensed with in order to solve this problem again puts to question some of the overly precautionary way that we've had a regulatory framework most immediately uh, and recently from the EU's imposition of that but it's not just the EU that have behaved in that way and even the fact that we're having this meeting on Zoom and um, people are talking about how this is going to shake up the workplace and that in fact you can get away with the much uh, uh, you don't need as many workers, you don't all need to be in offices and so on, that that could lead to an increase in productivity. So query slightly uh, the tone in relation to national protectionism. I mean, I've become concerned about a certain xenophobic attitude in relation to uh, other countries and the international tensions. Um, but having been called a xenophobe for the last three and a half, four years because I'm supported Brexit, how do we make the distinction between that kind of national protectionism, go local, turning in on ourselves, and in fact, the show of national self-determination and people realising the importance of actually solving problems that are democratically accountable at home. On to um, Hillary. I think in terms of nationalisation, there is massive nationalisation going on already. And, and, and Phil, I don't think it is kind of taking a stake in companies. I think it is owning companies. If you look at um, businesses like the train operating companies, these are just really lightly capitalised special purpose vehicles. There's nothing there uh, and government will just own them. Now, on one level, I, I don't think that's a problem and I don't think you're doing against it, given that, you know, the alternative is for all those people to be uh, unemployed. But I do worry that what it does is it kind of crowds out the space for dynamic business. Because, you know, as Claire said, you know, the real dynamism has come from people like the F1 teams helping to build respirators. It's not come from the, the states, but, the, you know, the, the state has found it really difficult and will always, I think, find it really difficult to intervene and help those smaller businesses. So it, it's going to be the wrong businesses that are saved, I think. It's going to be those vampire businesses that, that are the ones that government saves and not the, the dynamic ones. Um. And I think, you know, where the, the danger is that what all that does is it just heightens people's um, inability to take risk. So somebody mentioned about DC pensions. I mean, the, the, the conclusion people will draw is I was always wrong to buy equities. I should only have ever bought government bonds. And that's certainly the, the, the view that the pensions regulator is taking. Uh, so, you know, it kind of pushes even further any ability to kind of have a belief in the future and future growth. So whilst I would like to agree with uh, Daniel about there being some opportunity here, I am just actually very, very pessimistic. Robert Rowland. Yeah, that last point made by Hillary was excellent. She's absolutely right. Um, and I think that, um, as my friend Arthur Laffer said, uh, governments are most dangerous when they act in a panic and when they're drunk. And um, at the moment we're seeing certainly the behavior on the fiscal side, which is deeply worrying. But I focus a lot on the monetary side and looking at interest rates because that's obviously how it impacts and why we're in this sort of situation where, and as some of us on this call who I've worked with in the past know, that the danger of zero interest rates is when you do get to the crisis and no one predicted this particular crisis, even though we said that when it comes, it'll be very hard to extract yourself out of it is that we're doubling down on a losing strategy of more QE. Now, 
I, I'm flabbergasted that we haven't got inflation already, and I think that a part of that is because of globalization and the codependency we've always had on China, for example. I, I for one, and I'm trying to write an article about this um, for The Telegraph, is how, if you like, we've almost reached the West Berlin Wall moment now, where old sort of paradigms have gone and where China and our relationship and our codependency is going to disappear. And so globalization is now under threat. But the monetary side of it is seems to be our only way of getting out of uh, the escape velocity. And every time you do engage in more QE, you're clearly printing trillions of dollars. I mean, the UK, the US is going to at least, they've done a trillion already, they're probably going to easily get to another trillion. Um, and so we're looking at between 10 to 15% of GDP, more GDP uh, on money printing. So the QE part of it is deeply worrying because of all the issues that, that everyone knows, it's destroying the banking system, it's destroying it's the euthanizing of the pension industry, the whole savings industry. And of course, it leads to the, the lack of productivity. And in fact, if you believe in people like Nut Wixel, the Swedish economist, who, who, who understood the difference between a market rate of interest and natural rate of interest rate, then you need higher interest rates in order to get rid of those, uh, those companies that shouldn't be, be allowed to survive and have a proper creative destruction process. And in fact, periods of maximum productivity growth and economic growth, which we've experienced, for example, in the 2000s, have been when we've had a much higher interest rate. So weaning ourselves off lower interest rates almost seems to be impossible. And so I'm deeply pessimistic about things like productivity and all that that entails. And, you know, the other element is inflation, because this is not just a demand shock. It's a huge supply shock. I mean, many companies will go to the wall. I mean, the, the expecting government to deliver uh, money uh, at the point. Uh, and, and we all know that governments can't deliver at the point of execution. I mean, they're, they're hopeless at it. So to believe that government's going to suddenly rescue hundreds of thousands of companies is, is fanciful. I mean, already I've experienced the difficulty of getting loans off banks who don't have a clue what they're doing. So we have such limited time, but we are going to get an awful lot of money injections. So is this a case finally where, as Milton Friedman said, you know, inflation is always and everywhere a, a monetary phenomenon. We finally get a lack of supply, globalization, because of geopolitics means we just can't rely on the, on the Chinese anymore. After all, it is the epicenter of this, this virus. And that we do get some form of inflation. Now, people are going to say, well, wait, you know, inflation is normally related to oil and that's collapsed. Uh, it's related to wages and clearly, you know, there's going to be a lot of unemployment. But certain areas, there is going to be inflation. Um, but I, I don't, I still can't figure the puzzle out because asset markets have been massive beneficiaries of, of QE. Uh, the economies have not, we, we've seen stagnant growth rates. So by doubling down on, on this losing strategy of QE uh, on steroids, and at the same time having huge Keynesian money um, uh, fiscal programs, Albeit, I am I am more optimistic there in that they're going to be sunsetted, so that's good uh, because I do believe the narrative should be that it, it should be like um, an insurance policy. Once you've paid out your policy, you go back to 
to business as usual. But there is going to be a price to pay. Tax rates are going to continue to have to go up unless there's some kind of Herbert Hoover debt moratorium um, where we all wipe off, wipe out each other's debt. But I, I don't honestly believe that's possible. Um, okay. I know that's a very long-winded explanation for what happened. Okay. I, I don't really know the answer or, because we're all in panic mode. Right. Okay. Thanks, Robert. Uh, JJ Charlesworth next. I guess it's just echoing some of the points uh, made uh, just recently. That um, I mean, what's what's peculiar about the situation is that it is it is a government uh, directed crashing of the economy, right? So it's quite unusual in the sense that, regardless of the healthcare uh, crisis issues which have led to the policy uh, uh, turn which has been taken by governments across the world, it's nevertheless a government-led uh, shutting down of the economy, right? Uh, which is unusual. Um, and I, th- I wonder whether uh, some of the points that have been made uh, around, pro- I mean, what's, what I notice is not very much discussion about production and productivity. So there is a sense in which, although people can be having debates about uh, fiscal and monetary policy, I wonder if Phil has any comments about the real, uh, you know, chaotic consequences on production, supply, distribution, which will come out of these lockdown uh, uh, policies. I mean, for example, you know, farmers starting to worry very much that there won't be pickers to pick the harvests which are coming in this spring, and how that will, of course, that will produce uh, supply. Uh, pressures and there will be inflationary pressures associated with that. So I guess the the, the point is that you know what is the scope uh, and what is the parameters for quite serious uh, real economy and pr- productivity collapse or, 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 or radical breakdown uh, because of this uh, essentially policy invented stopping of the of economic activity. Um, because uh, I, I wonder. Um, whether public, I mean, the point about that is that in, in the 2008 crisis, a lot of uh, the public's mood was in the, in the developed world was managed by QE, by supporting consumption. Uh, and I wonder whether consumption can be supported fictitiously uh, in this crisis um, uh, very easily, and whether there will be then a democratic or, or, or demos-based resistance to what will be very real uh, consumption contraction. So uh, I'd like to, to hear a few more points on, on actual production on that. Lee Millard, next. The first is that it's been such a short amount of time that we've been in this lockdown, and yet already it is really a dramatic impact, I would say, um, on the economy. Um, and one of, the, one of the questions I've got is um, what... What's the relationship, I suppose, between the um, between business not going for it and uh, the actual requirement for a lockdown? So, it, looking at the construction industry, for example, uh, the government have gone out of their way, I would say, to try and encourage the construction industry to uh, stay at work. I mean, they've done the social distancing messages and all of that, um, but the response of many of many companies in the construction industry has to shut has been to shut down in any case um, and I'm just uh, interested in that question that relationship between um, 
fear, I suppose, and um, a, and a desire to keep things going because the consequence then of, of shutting down your business is not only loads of people get laid off um, and uh, don't have work to do, but obviously that has a big impact on your profitability and your ability to continue afterwards. And given that this is this shutdown has happened so rapidly, uh, really, and also voluntarily, uh, what what does that what does that the voluntary nature of it uh, tell us? And then my other second question is: uh, we've talked to, uh, quite a lot about the larger um, corporations, but the impact on the smaller business as well, and um, what what the bailouts mean for um, medium, smaller and medium-sized businesses because there's loads and loads of bailouts. Working in a smaller business my, myself, um, obviously even the furlough scheme, so you don't make anyone redundant, that's very humane. That's quite a nice thing. Um, but is that just delaying uh, the inevitable? Uh, then what, what does that mean in the, in the longer term? Look at the um, VAT holidays up until May 21. Um, the national insurance in small business, loads and loads of money. Are they going to be able to, how are they going to pay it back? What is that, that in and of itself for that smaller and medium sized sector of the economy, which is, you know, quite significant really, um, is going to also be um, quite dramatic. When we get out of this lockdown, what is there going to be to go back to? So I'm a bit worried about that. Okay, thank you very much, right. Uh, James Woodhausen. I can't really comment so much on the last few contributions about the kind of knock-on effects uh, too much. I think they'll be pretty serious, really. I, I, I agree with Phil's point about continuity and continuity in past state intervention, but the 15% figure for GDP depression, if I have it right, or stuff like that, suggests this is um, uh, very serious. I wanted just to um, talk, though, about uh, the point that Claire raised on, you know, the uh, people pulling together, at least in the private sector, um, to, uh, you know, make the new, the new kinds of equipment with uh, ventilators and all of that. Um, and then I wanted briefly to turn to Phil's uh, three tendencies that he outlined. Just on the, the sort of uh, the, the clear uh, issue, I think there have been some successes in uh, university departments and Formula One, as Hillary mentioned, companies and others putting together things in, at short notice. But I think if you compare that with the rhetoric of industrial policy, or manufacturing flexibility, or another buzzword, agility. Um, the private sector's performance has not been bad, but it hasn't measured up to all the hype. And certainly the state sector's performance, uh, the you know reality of regulatory and public health England incoherence, does uh, not so much ground my pessimism, but I think there's a, there is a big contrast between the willingness of the private sector, I'm, I'm told it's the same in the state, to get things together, and the difficulty uh, in the states, and, and the difficulty that the state has in both America and Britain 
in sort of pulling things together in anything like the reasonable but still not great performance of the of the private sector. Um, so I think this question, what used to be called in the days of the military-industrial complex in the Cold War, defence conversion, the ability to move from out of one sector in those days, military products, into another, I think that is worth taking a microscope to. I'm told that Philips, for example, in medical equipment, um, can't convert to making the ventilators that it would like uh, un unless it's going to take six weeks, two months and stuff like that. Rather a contrast with all the management literature about, you know, time to market, new product development and all of that. Then just on the Phil Phil's points, I think um, I agree with very much that the the big boys are going to benefit from this. And, and you know, recent contributions, Sally's about the impact on SMEs, I think that's right. We shouldn't forget that the big Silicon Valley IT companies are already cash kings, like Coke, Amgen, uh, and a number of other uh, giant American multinationals. So their cash position is going to assist them, whereas the SME cash flow is going to kill them in terms of the uh, fallout. I think a lot of the IT companies will be boosted by home working and all of that cloud stuff and telecoms, even though that you and I know that homeworking is mostly piecework, something that will come back further. Then I think Phil's right about the tendencies towards autarky. I think the dig for victory food phenomenon uh, is something the Greens will fasten upon. But I don't believe uh, that the um, opportunities for really going autarkic uh, especially from China, uh, for Britain, are, are really there. I think China's power, along with Korea's and Singapore's, will be boosted. And globalization, for me, has gone too far to allow um, you know, the autarky that many would, would seek to happen. We can't get out of the links with China. That's part of the problem. And finally, um, I think the, the dangerous phenomenon for me, if we are worried about the authoritarianism and all of that that Phil, I think, is right to conclude on um, is that a lot of middle-class, white-collar, um, petty bourgeois people are going to work remotely from their homes. And apart from loving the NHS workers, who they may not meet very much, they don't much like male manual people who work with fossil fuel cars and do deliveries and you know, spread the virus and all of that. That I think, although some are regarded as heroes, um, the level of disdain from a sort of "I'm all right, Jack" uh, middle class, even though it will be squeezed, is something that you know will make public denunciations and panics and stigmatizing individuals and the stigmatizing of dissent, I think that kind of sentiment will be buttressed by the changes in work practices that some people will turn from a necessity into a virtue. I think given the stack of comments that have been uh, lined up, it would be worth taking Phil at this stage just to give him some prospect of responding to them. So, um, Phil. Okay, thanks. Um, I'll do it in two, two aspects. One is the, the impact of what is going on, the lockdown, and what we can anticipate there. And secondly, then what the implications are, which was what more I was 
focusing my introduction on. On the impact, I think it is going to be very, very severe, as, as Sally and others have said. But, it, it, and it, but as JJ said, it's a different type. I think JJ said it's, it's a different type of recession. So we're going to have a very severe recession. I mean, the OECD is saying each month of lockdown, it's like 2% of GDP gets lost. So if it goes on for six months, it'll be a contraction of about 12%, which is much bigger than, uh, uh, than in 2008-9. Uh, so the, the, the precipitate implosion of economic activity whenever you take a decision to stop the society working to stop uh, uh, most of uh, 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 the economy operating apart from retail and if you can sneak into a few distribution centers and and uh, uh, you know allow some you know manufacturing to go on if you're two meters apart and stuff but broadly speaking it is a huge uh, uh, contraction and I, I, I wouldn't underestimate that at all that there will be, in that sense, destruction uh, in the sense of a lot of businesses. As I said, it could be, you know, hundreds of thousands of small businesses who will go bust. And, you know, there will be circumstances where those will not open up again. So that is going to have a significant effect. I do generally think that a government which was uh, not muddling, try, muddling through in its operations, not just pragmatic, could actually do something to uh, keep the economy afloat. I do think that it is possible uh, to compensate for this self-imposed shutdown. Uh, I do think it could be uh, possible to give uh, sufficient cash into the economy to keep people's incomes going. Unfortunately, um, not only have they uh, been incompetent at following through, they've also been so constrained by their um, uh, you know, conditional rules-based approach that they have created all sorts of you know, perverse consequences. Take Sally's point about, you know, on paper, it looks good to give people a, uh, a job retention scheme to give people 80% if they get furloughed. Um, but for a lot of companies, they would much prefer something like the German scheme, which is you can contract um, what people do, put everybody on 60% of work or whatever, uh, um, pay them a, a bit less, which is government funded. But the idea of having to split your workforce and say, you know, half the workforce we've got to lay off completely. The other ones we've got to keep on because we've got to, you know, maintain uh, some some business going, and we don't want everyone dis disappearing completely. That is a very divisive and you know uh, uh, and um, uh, uh, uninviting thing for businesses to do. Um, so so it's actually created circumstances where businesses' survival instinct are actually being impeded by the uh, conditionality of uh, some of these um, uh, uh, Rishi Sunak's initiatives. I think the classic one is the, um, is, is the money for small businesses. Businesses cannot get their money. They're in this catch-22 situation uh, in that if they cannot show themselves to be viable and produce a one-year cash flow forecast, which shows that they can, can pay back the loan, then they don't get the money. It's, it's one of these situations, you know, those classic situations is that you know, if, it, if it's raining, they don't give you the, you know, you don't have an umbrella sort of thing, I think it's the, the metaphor. But if you're in a weak position, you can't get the money. If you're in a strong position, you're not gonna apply for it because you don't wanna be tied into more debt if you don't have to be. You will extend it for another three or four months if you've got the cash reserves or you've got the other means of other credit lines you can draw on. But uh, for, for, for a lot of businesses, it's just, just not helping. So on finishing that point, very, very severe. Uh, uh, impact. And, you know, if you look at the horticulture of people talking about, or you look at, you know, what's happening in construction or many, 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 many other sectors. At the same time, yeah, 
Claire is right, other people are right, there'll be a few sectors which will uh, jump on it and, uh, and take the opportunities. You know, Formula One, you know, the only thing that can make anything in Britain, Formula One, uh, and, you know, a few pharmaceutical companies which don't seem to be making as much noise as they should be about how much they can contribute. It seems to be Johnson and Johnson and Roche and others who are uh, doing the running on this at the moment. But maybe the so-called cream of uh, British manufacturing of the pharmaceutical companies will get their act together and, and we'll see them, you know, building their reputation by developing a vaccine and sure hopefully giving it away for cost initially but they'll enhance the reputation through that there'll be a few pockets like that and you know james is right as well we can look at sectors which may as a result of this uh, see some opportunity on you know the discussion going on about e-scooters you know e-scooter businesses are collapsing at the moment because nobody's going around time but they're saying maybe this will be an opportunity for us because people won't want to go on public transport in the future because all germs and dangerous and stuff and you have to mix with people so maybe the e-scooter business will take off so there's all that sort of ups and downs you know interesting to look at but not fundamental but the point that going on to the second point is what is the implications of this contraction uh, it is very severe but it will come to an end in at the moment in three four five six months um if it goes on much longer as i said in my introduction then circumstances begin to change but uh, if it only goes on that long i think the main uh, consequence will be to accelerate existing trends. That's that, you know, crises generally do that. They reinforce what's already existing. And uh, I am therefore unconvinced that somehow because there's a, a lot of destruction going to be happening, that's going to force the state to take a lead or to create a framework for, um, uh, for creativity. Uh, you know, there'll be a few people doing it, but the instinct, I think, from everything I've seen over the last 30 years, and uh, reinforced by the people, by uh, uh, people who've been discussing, you know, Robert and others discussing about the the consequences since the 2008-9 crash of this uh, uh, ultra easy monetary policies, this quantitative easing, having a, the, the, which I remember came in as an emergency quantitative easing. We're going to help out for you know six months, twelve months, eighteen months, and then we'll you know go back to normal. You know, they become so dependent on it. That's the culture of business and the state and government at the moment, which is to try to preserve what exists. And it seems to me that is the way they've gone into this, the pandemic, and that's likely to be the legacy that's reinforced from it from an economic policy perspective. My last point is, is that in that then, it's not really a matter of whether it should be optimistic or pessimistic or, 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 or trying to discuss you know, some upsides and some downsides in terms of what they come in. It's, is this going to shake up not just the economy, but shake up the whole culture of a depoliticized approach to economic policy and to a lot of other areas as well. I don't see that happening automatically from the destruction of hundreds of thousands of small businesses, unfortunately. What it could be forced by, what it could open up a political discussion about what's necessary for society, is if it engenders a popular revolt of some type. That's what I meant when I said a core of bonus coronavirus type um, you know, Brexit shock. Uh, and that may well happen. It may well be that people do, you know, we're seeing things in Italy. I'm not saying that's the form it takes, but people in Italy after a month are getting a bit peeved off and there's a bit of pushback to the police and, the, uh, and so on. I'm not saying that's actually the form, but if this goes on for several months, it will create social uh, discontent. There will be a lot of unemployment. There will be a lot of hardship. Those weren't the things which created the Brexit thing, but you could see the possibility of some sort of um, uh, uh, popular revolt over this. That's a possibility. I'm not saying it's a probability, 
but it's possible. I think that's what you would need to look out for. And it's not going to happen in the next three or four months. But if pandemic lockdown goes on and on, then it could happen. That would be the thing that would create the circumstances rather than something being fatalistically, deterministically created by the fact that so many businesses have gone bust. Right. Um, so uh, let's have uh, Norman, uh, then Sheila and Rupert and Simon. But could you start to keep your points a bit uh, shorter now? That would be great. Thank you very much. I wanted to um, make a similar point to what Phil just ended on, which... Um, I think there's a lot of wishful thinking going on um, and dreaming and, and, and uh, frankly, a, a real load of, of, of rubbish being spoken um, about what, what the implications of this that we're seeing. So all this discussion, for example, about are we going to change the way we're going to work, people are going to work from home, you know, so many more businesses are, are going to go online, etc. What it really indicates to me is just how slow the so-called digital age has actually been. Um, I think it's also raised the question of about you know what are essential workers uh, in in society. You know when uh, I I assume that approximately two thirds of all the so-called information workers, uh, the white collar uh, desk bound workers, if they stopped working, you know we wouldn't really notice much uh, in, in the economy. I think um, you know when nurses stop working, when delivery drivers stop working, when garbage men stop working. Um, suddenly we realize that we still live in a society that is very much based upon unskilled and semi-skilled work, not the kind of information age that, it's, that, that everybody has been going on about for so many years. So a lot of myths, I think, are being destroyed. But uh, the, the, the real point I wanted to, to focus on was, was really the, the point that Phil was making about how this is extending existing trends. Um, and, and the one that, that I think he's, 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 he's really pointing to is this whole precautionary culture um, that has been very much in trade for many for, for decades now, which I think is really going to come into its own. I think the, 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 the banner today is not there is no alternative to the market. I think it's going to be there's no alternative to the state. Um, and that's now going to be enshrined in everything in how we understand society and where we're going to be looking to for solutions. The real problem for me remains that we're talking about a stagnant um, economy. We're not talking about a dynamic, innovative, forward-looking uh, in any sense of the word. And I think Phil's right to, to point to that this destruction that's going to occur to capital and all of that is not the same as, for example, in war, where capital is destroyed, where there is a, a restructuring that takes place and becomes the basis for new growth. And I, I, I'm struck very much by the fact that, you know, the big success story that everybody's talking about is Project Pit Lane, which is this, form, you know, the Formula, Formula One teams coming together. Um, let's not overblow this, uh, people. You know, what have they done? They've re-engineered uh, an existing off-patent device. They haven't even designed a new device. They've just re-engineered something that existed. Okay, they did it fast. And I think that accomplishment is something that should be should be celebrated and all of that. But, you know, this is not earth shattering. This is not game changing innovation. Uh, this does not rec um, mean that we are now on the verge of some very new things going to start happening. I think the, 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 the culture of low expectations and the short termism, all of that, I think is going to be reinforced. Um, uh, obviously dependent, as Phil said, on how long this goes on for, um, you know, in three months, six months, perhaps so. But I think that precautionary 
um, culture, all the in, in, all the shit that we have been exposed to in the, in, in this the, the you know identity politics, um, the intergenerational uh, dyna, you know, conflict, now, all of that is going to be strengthened when this all comes back. Not it's not going to be weakened. Um, and I think that the, the, in similar to what Daniel was was I think driving at, I think there's great opportunity to show up the difference between what the, what has been said, the myths, the the hype, and everything, and what needs to be done. But to make the case for that, I think is going to be much more difficult than we uh, I think we're assuming. Um, I'm not I'm not being optimistic or pessimistic because I think it's 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 never going to be a one way street. This. But um, I do think that that precautionary culture is going to be strengthened, not weakened. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Rupert. What I wanted to say was, uh, historically, uh, plague actually has been the catalyst for the collapse of weak empires. And uh, I actually think this is quite significant. So I do think uh, this is going to have a much bigger impact on what has become an extremely weak West uh, and I think everybody needs to probably prepare themselves for that. The bottom line is that the state has been taking far too much out of the private sector. Uh, it's weaponized all of our uh, financial advisors against us. It sits there, it collects VAT, it collects uh, all taxes, national insurance, income tax, pensions. It's all been uh, lobbed onto the private sector, to these small businesses which have had to collect all this money and pass it on to the state. So what I, what I think is quite interesting is that the state has taken this action that it's taken, I think, to protect the votes of the aging people. But in doing so, if they're not very careful, they're going to destroy the economy. And in destroying the economy, they're actually going to make it patently obvious that they've been taking far too much out for far too long, because most of the private companies have not been able to maintain reserves. I don't know how many of you run businesses, but our accountants and auditors have become tax collectors in that they've uh, insisted that we pay tax uh, every year. We don't carry any reserves through and ultimately the economy therefore is in quite a weak state. So I think a lot of what's being done is being done to protect the fact that the state is taking too much out. Uh, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, as I think Warren Buffett said, when the water goes out, you can see where the rocks are. And I think we will progressively see that that's been the case. Uh, interestingly, we, we were approached today uh, uh, to try and help build a 500-bed hospital uh, uh, somewhere near Southampton. And some of our staff have actually been furloughed. And we went around some of them, and quite a number of them actually didn't want to go back to work. They, they didn't want to risk catching the coronavirus. Uh, and we've been struggling to get enough staff to actually be included in, in that tender. So I, I personally, I take, I think it was Hillary's view, I, I'm quite negative. I, I think we're in danger here of not levelling up, but severely levelling down, because I, it's the rich who have far more to lose than those people who live hand to mouth. Of course they will suffer, but at the end of the day, it's the rich who will lose their money. And... I think we all know that the rich do everything they possibly can to maintain their own privileges and, 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 and their special treatments. What I think Phil's point, what I think was incredibly uh, valid is, I think we should have some form of body that decides when this crisis is over. It shouldn't be the state. Uh, it sh there should be some form of 
legal separation and, and separate decision making, which decides when this is. Because in my view, if it goes on beyond the end of May, I think we're in for a total catastrophe and complete lockup. People won't pay their bills. Uh, it will be an absolute disaster. And most, most of us aren't expecting any money from the state before June anyway. So um, I, I think this is very significant. I think it was the Sassanid Empire in 541 and 2 that collapsed as a result of a large plague. We're very weak, and this is going to expose how weak we actually are. Okay, right. That, that, that's great. It's interesting you said about becoming serfs when it was the Black Death that seemed to end feudalism. Um, right. Uh, so I'm going to take um, Simon Belt, and then everybody's going to have to be like very, very brief now. So Simon Belt, James Petz, and Sheila McNerney, and then I'll bring Phil back in. So, Simon. Uh, so just to come at this from a different angle, if you could, Bill, the key workers discussion is very, very interesting because it does seem to focus very much on the uh, sphere of consumption. So the uh, key workers are people in supermarkets, people in transport who take the food to the supermarkets, but it doesn't include people in production. And it's kind of like a, a bit of an afterthought that uh, F1 uh, Mercedes produced the uh, breathing apparatus, but there isn't that sense in which uh, the productive sphere is that important. And uh, who's gonna, who's involved in producing all the raw materials for the uh, vaccines? It is the productive sphere. So could you kind of rework the uh, comments? around where how we're going to come out of this uh, along the lines of uh, what James usually writes about in developing new spheres of uh, the economy in the kind of productive sphere or is it a bit of a false uh, separation? Okay, um, I'll take James Petz briefly. It's one um, slightly more positive thing to what I said a little earlier on. Um, one can't be entirely sure how this will pan out, of course, but one possibility, uh, as has been touched on to some extent, but I want to explore uh, slightly more the, the consequences of greatly increased homeworking is a possibility that there will be far fewer in the way of office buildings. The idea of an office as a building may disappear entirely and may then reshape the economies of cities, so it will be no longer necessary for people to live near where they work or need work in a specific place at all. And that may have the consequence of greatly reducing land prices in cities, which may reduce the extent to which people are able to make money by landlordism and may increase people's productivity in many various ways. Right. OK, thanks, James. Uh, finally, Sheila. But very, very briefly, I was really interested in that last point about the future of office buildings, actually, because I think that the nature of what offices are has been changing in any case. So the idea that you'd actually go to the office in order to be sociable um, and to meet fellow workers, and, and maybe that will be um, speeded up somewhat. Um, but the, the two very quick points I wanted to make, one is in relation to, I'm really interested in this idea of a virtuous business. So the idea of how that would be redefined through all of this. Um, and I'm a bit worried about how the idea of a virtuous worker would be redefined along that as, uh, alongside that as well. Um, so some particular phenomena that I'm 
surrounded with in my world, sort of day-to-day -day and discussions that go on by all the people who are working at home at the moment really inefficiently and ineffectively. Um, and it's causing, you know, it is causing real hardship and great strain within those households. And there's lots of jokes about it and everybody's putting a brave face on it. But um, kind of who's, who's being a virtuous worker at home at the moment and who's watching anymore is of interest to me. And one of the phenomena I came across just recently was this idea that, you know, we should be really kind to the women workers at home who may, maybe they're single parents, but you can't actually work at home and teach your children at home and take whatever percentage salary you're supposed to be taking for that day. It isn't actually possible and everybody's pretending um, and trying to be virtuous. So I've heard, you know, be kind to women trying to work at home at the moment with children and they will reward you as a business owner in the future by being loyal to you in the future. And it's kind of all these kind of quite moralistic statements and positions going on. And I just feel there is some incredibly powerless people who are being encouraged to raise their expectations. So whilst we're worrying about the big economic futures and what can happen, it's, there are individuals encouraged by certain politicians I know who are being asked to raise their expectations and demand of these businesses because now's the time to hold businesses to account. So I kind of worry about that in terms of some people's expectations on an individual level. Um, and then this discussion about what is a key worker, I think is really, really important and really fascinating at all levels. Um, and I'm really surprised, I'm taken aback that the local state, um, you know, I'm really surprised that we're still funding self-employed artists. I'm really surprised that there are certain things that you know, it, it's, it's become a virtue around where I'm living and working to say, well, what about all the restaurant owners, the cafe owners? What about um, the artists and the mime artists and everybody who's been put out of work who were entertainers? And it's the idea that that's a priority um, over the drivers and the logistics people. Um, I think, Simon, you were making that point. I'm really, really interested in that. Um, so what is worthwhile work seems to be just such an enormous question. And if we can re-look at that, I think that would be fantastic. And then the final tiny, tiny point, and it goes without saying, um, I think, no, we don't know, do we? We don't know what, what deals are actually being done right now and what relationships are being formed. But what are those deals that are being struck with those businesses who um, are seen as virtuous, so we're going to be seen as part of the future, and who's already going to be kicked aside? Phil, would you like to come in and sort of try and bring some of the stuff together? I'll just comment on the things that uh, seem pertinent to you. Yeah, sure. Um, I concur with people who say that the uh, destructive effects, the effects on existing businesses, will be uh, will be profound and will be huge, particularly if this goes beyond, you know, three three four months. I agree with that. What I'm uh, suggesting is that that itself will not uh, change uh, the nature of uh, a decrepit uh, sclerotic economy or state framework, which uh, is geared to trying to sustain this decrepit uh, sclerotic economy. Um, I mean, the thing that I've you know, learned 
over the last sort of 30, 40 years, I mean, ever, I think it's really ever since the 1987 stock market crash, that Black Monday, which was a huge shock to the capitalist system across uh, Britain and, uh, and America. And people said this would have all sorts of implications, you know, share prices have collapsed, you know, the, the, the economy is going to go completely down, down the pan. Well, there's this high resilient, um, uh, a state propped up economy has been. Um, uh, and I call this scenario um, uh, precarious um, uh, sclerosis. That is that the economy is sclerotic. It is producing damn all in the, in the, in the, in the way of wealth, um, but it survives on a precipice. And, you know, we're, we're, I think we had a forum a couple, of, a couple of forums ago, we were discussing, you know, what are the implications of this huge amount of corporate debt out there, you know, propped up by central banks have sort of, you know, through their ultra-easy monetary policies have, have allowed so many businesses just to issue debt. And this discussion of, you know, half of the investment grade debt there is triple B, as we were discussing, I'll go into it, the new audience here. But basically, it's very, very fragile, a lot of this indebtedness. And therefore, the whole corporate sector is extremely fragile. So it, it, there is it, this sclerosis, which is very precarious, but somehow society, uh, the economy seems to seems to muddle through uh, because there is nobody questioning what is going on. So I think I would end by uh, drawing on, on, on the comments of, of particularly of Rupert and Simon in terms of what sort of discussions can we engender through this about exposing just how bad things are. are. You know, uh, uh, and that's not doing that in a in a grim and, uh, uh, you know, uh, pessimistic way because you're able to do things like actually showing you know there is a little bit of uh, of of, uh, of uh, inspiration there of a few sectors who are trying to take advantage of this to show that it is these things are possible and there's lots of positive experiences that people of solidarity that people have been engaged in hopefully we will have a a vaccine that comes out of this and so on which will be a, an indication of, of human ingenuity and stuff but you know to show how bad things are if 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 we can have a discussion which has say like who is a I think a productive worker rather than a key worker, because you know who is it that we need to to run society, uh, you know, to create the wealth from which all of us um, can uh, can can live, and from which you know we can have a decent health service, which has got a few more ventilators and a few more uh, you know intensive care beds than the one that we've uh, we've had now. If we can create that discussion about why the economy and why wealth production and why productive work is important, if if if. If there's an openness to that as a result of some of the repercussions of this, whenever people see that, you know, what happens whenever things disappear for three, four, five months, then I think that would be a good way to, tr to, to, to uh, try and intervene into a broader public discussion, which is about repoliticizing what the economy is. So that, that's the positive side I would have. That might happen, but nothing will happen automatically unless we begin to, to uh, extend those public discussions and public engagement about it. Right, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Phil. Um, I'm going to unmute you all, and if you could just show your appreciation to Phil. <laughs> You've been listening to the podcast of Ideas. Make sure you subscribe to the Academy of Ideas newsletter to find out about our upcoming online forums, salons and debates in the coming weeks and months.